0: The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. I show you how deep the rabbit hole
1: goes. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Nicholas Gregorati show. I am your host, Nicholas Gregoraitis. I had such a great time speaking to this week's guest. I usually take a lot of stuff away from my guests because they're almost always very intelligent, wise, worldly, and experienced men. But every now and then there's one that stands out And the things that I learn in the episode, I use almost immediately and they almost instantaneously result in improved quality of life for me. And in today's episode, that's exactly what happened. I learned so much during that conversation and I immediately started to put it into practice what I learned from the guest and it's paid dividends already. And I think you guys are gonna get a lot out of this one. Before we start the show, I know you guys appreciate my work or I like to think you appreciate my work because that's why you keep listening and the audience keeps growing. Uh, A lot of you wanna know how you can help. And the best way to help is just to support my sponsors. At the moment, I have two sponsors. The first is Bubs Naturals, which is a company based here in Southern California, headed by a lovely human being named Sean Lake. And one of the products that they sell is something I use all the time. It's their all-natural collagen. If you haven't yet tried collagen, get it. It's great for your joints. It improves your sleep. It improves the quality of your skin, hair, and nails. It's just a very healthy thing to have. I am naturally a skeptic when it comes to health stuff because during the course of my 42 years on this planet, I've been very interested in all avenues of improving one's health and I've seen so many scams and so much overhyped bullshit and I can tell you straight up collagen does not fall into that category. Collagen really works and Bub's Naturals has the best collagen on the planet as far as I'm concerned. You can find out more and get 20% off of Bub's Naturals collagen if you go on over to bubsnaturals.com and you use the coupon code NICG, that's N I C G two zero, and you'll get 20% off any of their products, including that collagen I've been speaking to you about. Also, as I said in uh, the previous show, if you're wanting to get the splinter out of your mind, as Morpheus is to Neo in the Matrix, if you're wanting to get rid of any blocks that are holding you back from healing and becoming totally integrated and self-actualized, I highly recommend you go and check out my spiritual mentor and close friend, Rocco Jarman's website. Rocco is, I've said this many times, I'm not afraid to say it again. He's the most powerful man I know. He is a better man than I am. There's no doubt about it. And uh, he's got this uncanny ability to just understand instinctively what a person needs or what they're lacking Spiritually and psychologically. And he helps them find what's missing and reintegrate it back into themselves and go to the next level. Head on over to eyeswideopenlife.org if you want to find out more about Rocco's work. Cannot recommend him enough. Okay, guys, let's dive into this week's episode with Dr. Doug Knoll. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Nicholas Gregorati Show. My guest today is Mr. Douglas E. Knoll, who is an extraordinarily accomplished and interesting character. Doug, you are someone who's overcome congenital disabilities. You have become a lawyer. You're a technology expert. You're just, as I said, multifaceted and highly accomplished. And I'm so grateful to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: I'm looking forward to a really interesting conversation because you're a pretty interesting guy yourself from what I can tell.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Well, let's start with, I don't even want to say the word disability because it's such a limiting word and it clearly didn't, uh, your your challenges with your, your certain physical, and again, I don't even want to say limitations, but the cards you were dealt physically were, were kind of tough, right? Like when you were born.
0: I was. I was born in 1950 and I was born partially blind, crippled with two club feet, partially deaf. Left handed, bad teeth. I mean, you, you name it. And I had the problem. Uh, the only good thing was I got in the right line for intellect. Nice. Yeah, and back in those days, I grew up in Southern California, where you live, uh, in affluence, and nobody really knew how to deal with somebody like me. Mm-hmm. So the prevailing strategy that my parents followed was suck it up, buttercup, and tough it out. And that was really probably the worst thing they could have done with me, as I now know, many, many years later. Anyways, I struggled through growing up all the way through high school. I was very, very smart, but had all these problems. And and it wasn't until the fourth grade that some school nurse finally decided to test my vision and figure out that I was blind, which is why I wasn't doing well in school. They got me some Coke lens glasses, which, of course, was a complete turnoff to the girls for the rest of my growing up. And that summer, I guess I was 10 or 11 years old. I advanced three grade levels. Um, I just went into our public library and just spent the summer in the library. In fact, the librarian called my mom and said, he's in the adult section. What do you want me to do? And she said, let him be wherever he wants to be. Hmm. And I just started reading voraciously because now I could see. So I did did well academically and graduated from high school and then went back east to Dartmouth College. And from Dartmouth, I, I graduated in With a degree in English literature, and in those days, if you didn't go to med school, you went to law school. So I came back to California and enrolled in law school and did well academically in law school, ultimately worked for an appellate judge for a year passed the bar and started in private practice as a young associate in a bankruptcy litigation firm in central California. And uh, I joined the firm in September of 1978 and tried my first jury trial in November of 78. And they they groomed me to be a big time trial lawyer. And that's what
1: I did for 22 years. That's kind of how it started. Okay. Interesting. So many things I want to discuss. The first is you said you were born into affluence. No, the, the image I have in my head and correct me if it's inaccurate is your parents, I'm presuming your father because of the year in which you were born was, I'm guessing, an accomplished or successful business person or, or executive? Interesting question. It was really the wealth was on my mother's side of the
0: family. And my father graduated from Purdue University after the war. He served in the Navy during World War II and then went to Purdue and graduated with a degree in metallurgical engineering, met my mother and moved from the Midwest where he grew up to Southern California and became an executive in my Grandfather's uh, furniture business, which was a fairly large furniture chain that was blooming because of the post-war development in Southern California, and so we grew up. I grew up in San Marino, which, as you probably know, is a fairly affluent area in the Pasadena-San Gabriel Valley, and so lots of privilege. And I was grew up in a privileged environment, no question about it.
1: Yeah, interesting. Well, I'm speaking to you from Eagle Rock, which is not far from well, there. You me. go. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Where I was going with that is, and again, I don't want to overstep any boundaries here or or bring up anything that's painful, but I, I think your story is very interesting. As an outsider, someone who arrived in this country four or five years ago, and someone who loves the culture and is fascinated by it and studies it all the time, one thing I notice is that, especially in a place like Southern California, there's this general drive towards you've got to be a winner, right? Like the society only has places for, for winners and, and good-looking people and successful, accomplished, actualized people. And I just wonder, like, was there... You were born with these challenges. I think challenges is probably the word I was looking for earlier. Was there... Did you feel a sense of disappointment from your parents? Is that, was, was that the thing that was most difficult about that? Because clearly, you overcame every other aspect of it. Disappointment, certainly. Confusion I'm talking about
0: my parents now confusion really being confused about how to how to even deal with me and complete lack of emotional support. I mean they grew up as post Victorians and you know emotions were not part of their vocabulary so although they love me and my mother is still alive ninety four years old, although they love me, they didn't demonstrate their love and they didn't provide me any emotional support. I had to figure it out all on my own and I was the oldest of four boys, so I was in the un, unlike Many other families, you know, I mean, as the oldest, you've got to figure things out on your own. So I had all kinds of challenges. And I was socially inept, you know, because I was in and I hit it with arrogance and intellect. And, you know, basically was not one of the cool kids. <laughs> it was the opposite yeah. of one of the cool kids. I was sort of kind of nerdy. And but I slowly overcame the disabilities. The glasses fixed, fixed my eyesight. My club feet were, one of my left leg was corrected by surgery, which allowed me to, to walk The Dr. Orthopedic. guy said I'd never be able to do anything, but I, I learned how to, my parents were really good about exposing me to a lot of stuff. So I was in scouting and became an equal scout. I learned how to ski. You know, we backpacked all through the mountains, both the San Gabriel Mountains, the San Bernardinos, up in the Sierra Nevada. And so I, I started backpacking when I was five years old. It hurt because I was in a lot of pain, but I loved it. And I learned how to overcome the pain and just push through it. Is, it's just part of this is just what my life is. And I was stubborn and persistent. And I learned how to learn. I learned that I'm a slow learner, even though I'm smart. I'm Physically, I'm a slow learner. And I just, I wouldn't give up. And I think that's, those are the lessons that endured. But it really wasn't until I left the practice of law in 2000 that I really started to started to blossom and grow as a human being. Sure. It took me 50 years.
1: <laughs> to yeah, I'm going I'm to get back to the, uh, I definitely want to discuss uh, your, your law career. Your, your brothers, so you're the oldest of four boys. Were your brothers physically healthy when they were born, or did they have challenges of their own? Or? They were mostly healthy, a few
0: uh, of some relatively minor problems, nothing, nothing serious, nothing serious like me. And they were all great athletes and very popular in school. So they all did really well. And, and you know, I ended up with fairly successful careers. My one brother's a PhD, another one was a CP and financial advisor. Unfortunately, my third brother was died of AIDS and, in the 1990s. So that was sad but and tragic. Wow. But but uh, they all did really well. And, you know, I, I did well too, but it just took me a lot longer to get the air under my wings.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of uh, when I was growing up, we had some family friends, uh, their kids were my sister's age and they actually were close friends with my sister. It was two brothers. They were identical twins, literally Mm -hmm. identical, except one of them was born without legs below the knees. Wow! And I, to me, that was always such a trip. I could never get my head around it. I, I, you know, like I tried to look at the perspective of both of them, like was the one who didn't have legs. Did he look at his brother with jealousy and, and the one who did have legs, did he look at his brother with pity and what, did he have, feel any guilt? And to me, it was just always such a trip how these guys were identical in every way, except for that. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to me. And then your story just, just brought that up for me. And I got to tell you, Douglas respect, man, for overcoming those challenges. I mean, I had challenges of my own growing up they, they definitely weren't as, as um, intense and extreme as yours, but I know what that's like to feel like you're on the outside looking in, and yeah, uh, it's very lonely. It's very lonely. Yeah, good for you, my man. I'd love to talk about your 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 legal career. You said you became a trial lawyer. You know, I grew up watching shows like LA Law and <laughs> Matt, Matlock, and
0: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> a few. I watched a few Good Men and a bunch of you know uh, films that were set around this legal theme, and. I I was married to a lawyer for a while a JD. And one of the things that became so clear to me, getting to know what what it was like from the inside is that, you know, everyone thinks, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to be standing in this courtroom going, objection, your honor. And like, you know, (laughs) figuring stuff out. and, And what I very quickly realized is right now, it's very seldom the case that you get to do stuff like that. And mostly what it is, is, Sitting with a stack of extremely dry, boring paperwork, trying to get a certain number of hours billed for your employer. Um, it's my understanding, as well, according to the statistics, that the legal career is the one with the least uh, career appreciation. Isn't the right term, but that's that's you, you get the gist. Like most lawyers are deeply unhappy people because of their work. And I'm just wanting to know what your experience was like. Um, Did you see any of that? Was it different? Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. the The fun part of being a trial lawyer was being in the courtroom. And you're right, we did. I mean, I tried a lot of cases, over 200 cases. So I got in more than most over 22 years. But it was the um, and the way. And I was very successful. And and the reason that I was successful was that I could stand the tedium better than anybody else. I would walk into a room with a client's office where they'd have 100 banker's boxes full of documents and I would go through and read every single document. It might may take me a month to read it, but I would read every single document so I thoroughly understood what was going on and what the case was all about. And I can't tell you how many cases I won because I would do stuff that no other lawyer would do in just in terms
1: of being able to put up with the boredom. And I was
0: really good at that.
1: Yeah, so I mean your superpower was just your ability to endure exactly correct, and
0: you know once you win a case because you endured, then all of a sudden you realize this is the secret to winning these kinds of cases is, mm. is I just have to I just have to outwork everybody else, and that's exactly what I did and it was you know I won some really amazing I won cases nobody thought were possibly winnable, and I mean it was amazing, and I won some big cases, a lot of money. The problem but at to your point. Practicing law, for the most part, is not a very fun business. And especially if you're in litigation like I was, you're fighting with everybody. There's no peace at all. You're fighting with your partners over the distribution of money and profits. You're you're fighting with your client over getting your bill paid. You're fighting with the court. You know, you're obviously fighting with the adversary and the opposing counsel. I mean, it's just a constant conflict. And it just wears on you after a while. Mm-hmm. And even today, I look around at my colleagues I've known for 40 years, and, and there are very few of them that that I could say are really happy doing what they're doing. They made a lot of money, but they, they sold are not their, their souls. souls. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they sold their souls, but they they are certainly not living satisfied lives, and they certainly are not serving people in the way that I am able to serve people today. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the secret. Is My secret is when you learn how to serve others... In a meaningful way, that's when your life really changes and becomes happy. And that that didn't happen as a lawyer. In fact, that was the reason why I left the practice of law is because I realized I was not serving very many people, even though I was very successful yeah. professionally and financially.
1: I remember, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I remember speaking to my ex-wife about it once. Uh, I'd read an article about, there was a, a Southeast Asian country. I cannot remember which one it was, but they had successfully impose some sort of limitations on big tobacco in their country. I don't know if they—if it was something along the lines of they required certain warnings on the boxes or there, there was something they were doing to try to protect the population from the effects of cigarette smoking. And uh, this tobacco company had uh, sent in this team of crack lawyers to appeal or sue or whatever the correct technical term is to overturn this and to, to not have to do, to, do, to do that and to not have to lose the money that they would have invariably lost if that, that thing had gone through. And I remember saying to my ex-wife, I was like, how do you think those people justify what they're doing? Those lawyers who are there to protect the, the corporate interests of a company that basically sells death and disease, right? Like how do they, how do they sleep at night? How do they like sit down and say like, I am a good moral person who's adding to the world. And I remember she couldn't answer me. <laughs> she just had, she had nothing, and I think that to me is uh, I don't know. It, it's telling. Well, it's telling. people will do that
0: because the 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 compensation is extraordinary, and so they those are people who will sell their soul for professional prestige and and making money. And what you learn to do as a lawyer, and I certainly did it, was you learn how to compartmentalize everything. Hmm. So I completely compartmentalized my law practice away from the, from the things that were most important in my life at the time. And you just learn how to do that. And you go to, you go lawyer, you put your lawyer hat on, you're a lawyer, and then you take your lawyer hat off and you're your real self. And that, and that's the only way you can really
1: manage that sort of thing. Mm, that's interesting that you say that, because to me, I don't, I mean, I, I get it. I've done that in my own life many times, compartmentalize certain things, especially like more questionable behaviors of, of mine. But what I've realized is that my whole thing is about alignment, right? I want to live a life of alignment because I exactly. feel that's alignment and service. And I think that when you compartmentalize stuff, that's just not possible. If you, if you hate what you're doing, right? And everything else is cool. Like you eat well and you hang out with your friends and you know you've got all the other compartments sorted, but you absolutely detest what you're doing. I don't think you're ever going to fulfill your potential. I just don't well, think it's
0: possible. I t- completely agree with you. And again, that was one of the driving motivations for leaving the practice of the law and becoming a peacemaker is that the practice of the law, I, I felt like I was living two lives and I was not integrated and it was tearing me apart. And so ultimately, you know, I gave a week's
1: notice and left $10 million on the table and walked out. Okay. So this is where it starts to get even more interesting. Uh, I was looking at your bio earlier and you mentioned, yeah, you were, you became a peacemaker and I just have no idea what that means. I mean, I'm, I was thinking of like a UN soldier in Serbia or something like that, but it's it's obviously not that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, Doug? Because that sounds really cool. Yeah. So the work that I do,
0: I went back to school in mid-career in the late 1990s and earned my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. And basically what I do today and what I've done for the last 20 plus years is help people who are engaged in deep, difficult, emotional conflicts sort out their problems and help them find peace and reconciliation and it, it, I work in corporations I work in family business conflicts I work in communities I teach these skills in maximum security prisons here in California with our prison of peace project basically teaching people how that there are ways of resolving disputes and conflicts um, that can lead to optimal results if you're willing to engage in the process mm-hmm. and so basically, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have told me, "Gee, if you can help us resolve our conflict, you know, you walk on water." <laughs> and then, you know, we get the conflict resolved, and they forget the comment. And I just sort of smile. Human conflict is very predictable. Human behavior in conflict is very predictable. Uh, we have a, we humans have a very small repertoire of conflict behaviors. To the to the untrained eye, it looks like chaos, but to the trained eye, it's extremely predictable, and I can tell. People exactly what's going to happen next and how it's going to play out and what what other people are going to do because we are so predictable and because of that predictability you know I've developed a series of interventions processes and procedures that turn the trajectory of the conflict away from a destructive relationship towards productive positive relationships where people can you know live together again. Uh, in peace and harmony and, and in the business context, be profitable and healthy and move on with their lives. That's basically what I've been trained to do
1: and what I've trained thousands of other people to do.
0: Wow. Um, this
1: is this is so, I mean, I, I'm guilty of using the word fascinating too often on the show, but to me, this is truly fascinating. I, I was just reflecting on this yesterday, actually, which is uh, I came to the understanding or, I guess it's maybe an understanding. it's it's more theory or postulation at this point that you know all all of my interpersonal conflicts and failures in in life, and there aren't even that many of them. there's just a few standout ones. And if I look at them, I realize that it ultimately was because of interpersonal conflict. and that interpersonal conflict, I presume, based on the facts and the analysis that I've done, has come down to a, a communication issue more than anything else. Would you say that that's generally the, at the root of, of conflict? I would say that that is the layer that's above the root, is the lack of
0: communication skills. The root of all conflict is emotion. Hmm. Having feelings of, let's say, disrespect or anger or frustration or anxiety or fear, of not being appreciated, of feeling, but feelings of betrayal or being abandoned, not being loved. Fundamentally, all conflict starts with emotion. And that's why I am a deep student of the neuroscience of emotions, because once we begin to understand what emotions are and aren't and can start working with emotions, that leads to, one, self-awareness, and two, the ability to develop cognitive and affective empathy, which once you start expressing empathy in in the particular way that I teach it, Magic happens. People calm down almost instantly. So you're right. Communication is a big part of it. But the reason that people can't communicate well, one, they haven't been taught how to do it. But more importantly, underneath are unmet emotional needs that sometimes people in conflict aren't even aware that they have. Mm -hmm. And so because they can't express their emotions, the term is called alexithemia. They're alexithemic, inability to understand and express their own emotions. They resort to Childhood programming, which is totally reactive and unconscious, and that of course usually escalates the conflict significantly.
1: Wow, this is mind blowing to me, Doug. I'm thoroughly appreciating this because it's been my journey, or, or a big part of my journey, has been into the emotional realm. You know, I had this, I came to this uh, understanding many years ago, which is I believe that human beings are. Basically, pieces of emers- of um, technology that the universe created to experience itself with, right? So we're these like these little units that are out there gathering data that, are- and then returning it to the source, which you could call God or Brahma or the All Knowing or whatever you want to you'd want to describe it as. And one of the hallmarks of us as these pieces of universal technology is that we are emotional technology. We run on emotions. And I've noticed with myself through a lot of experimentation and meditation and the use of certain substances. And I mean, in my own case, I'm a very emotional being. My emotions dictate almost everything, all of my choices, my values, my my fear. Well, fear, I guess, is, is an emotion, but, but what I move towards, what I move away from, it's all determined by emotions. So I'm always interested in learning more about that aspect of what it is to be human and how to to master it so i guess where i'd go with that is uh is there anything like kind of cliff notes that you could give myself and the listeners on on how to to master this aspect of ourselves
0: yes (laughs) so your insight is exactly correct we are as human beings we have been led uh fed a lie for, for over 4,000 years that human what separates humans from other animals is rationality. That's what Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, all these ancient Greek philosophers, and throughout the centuries, philosophers have said what makes us different is rationality. And so we have, our society is based on this myth of rationality. The truth is, as neuroscientists are pointing out now, is that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And in fact, we can't even be rational without being emotional first. Mm. And that to me, when I got that insight, that changed everything for me. Because now all of a sudden, when I, as a peacemaker, looking at people in conflict and acting, acting out their conflicts and being angry, all of a sudden, it was no longer about being irrational. It was simply that they, they weren't irrational. They were emotional. Mm. And once I saw those emotions and began to recognize them, then everything started to change. And, and as a result of that, I developed an intervention that I'll share with you that is the most powerful foundational skill I have ever l- developed, and it, it's absolutely magic how it works. The technique is called affic labeling, and basically, what you do when you're confronted with an angry person is you engage in a three-step process. The first thing you do with that angry person is you ignore their angry words. you don't You don't listen to them. You just ignore the words. You've heard it all before. You can ignore the words, don't ignore the person, but you can ignore the words for about 90 seconds. The second thing you do is you unleash a part of your brain that we never really, did. We, it's innate, but we just don't use it because we've been told that emotions are bad in our lives. And that is that we learn how to read the emotional data fields of the other, this angry person. And our brains can do this automatically, effortlessly, with 100% accuracy every single time. We are masters at reading other people's emotions because this is the skill that evolution has bestowed upon us over millions of years of development. What most people don't know is that we've only had the ability to talk vocabulary for a little less than 230,000 years. And yet hominids have been on the planet for millions of years. How did they communicate if they couldn't talk to each other? Mm. Well, they communicated through emotions. And so the brain... Our brains have become highly adept at reading emotions and what that means. It's called theory of mind. And so we have this incredible ability to look at each other, just watch each other, and know what the other person is thinking and feeling. And we don't develop that skill because of this privilege placed on rationality. And, you know, we're told that emotions are bad, they're weak, they're irrational. You know, you can't be a, for men, don't be a girly girl, don't cry, suck it up for Girls, it's the same kind of thing. We're all emotionally invalidated as children, which is, of course, incredibly abusive. So we learn, but but you can learn very quickly how to read other people's emotions. So that's step number two. Then step number three is to reflect back what that angry person is experiencing with a simple you statement. So I'd say something like, Nick, man, you are really angry. You are pissed off. You're frustrated. You don't feel like you're being heard. You feel completely misunderstood. You're not, you don't feel appreciated or supported. And you're sad and you're a, little, you're a little anxious about this too. And you feel completely abandoned. And you feel like you're completely unloved. That process of reflecting back emotional experience with a you statement, just very direct, telling people exactly what they're feeling has been shown in numerous brain scanning studies, the first of which was in 2007 that came out of Matthew Lieberman's lab at UCLA, shows that when you label somebody else's emotions, the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, which is shut down in conflict and a high emotion, comes back online. And at the same time, the emotional centers of the brain that are responsible for these strong emotions, primarily the amygdala and other limbic system structures in the brain are inhibited. And literally, people calm down in less than 90 seconds. That's incredible. So, it, it's ultimately it what they're looking for is just recognition on some level. That's it. Val- it's emotional validation. And it all, it's all happening un- unconsciously. You don't even know when, if, when you're really angry and somebody's affect labeling you, you don't even know what's happening. All of a sudden, you go from a raging 10 to a super calm Zen out 1 in like mm-hmm. nine. It's amazing. Mm. And I've, I've been teaching, I discovered it in 2005. Lieberman study came out in 2007 and teaching it in graduate school. And also, but the acid test was the Prison of Peace project that I started with my colleague Laurel Coffer in 2010, where we were asked by a woman serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California, to train the lifers how to be peacemakers. And this was the foundational skill we started with. And today, Prison of Peace has grown incredibly. We're in 15 California prisons, 14 prisons in Greece, prison in Italy. We're starting up in Nairobi. And because we spent the COVID period when the prisons were locked down, we couldn't get in. We filmed the entire curriculum. And the film will be, a, the all our lessons and modules will be
1: available worldwide in a couple of months. Via video download, so it's pretty amazing. Yeah, we, I mean, great work with that. Doug. It's many things came up while you were discussing that. The first one is when you, you spoke about how hominids were using uh, non-verbal communication. Right. I was reminded of that quote. Uh, I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, "What you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say." <laughs> and that's right. It's 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 true. I mean, you, you know, someone. I, I've identified this as well with even if people on the other side of the world and I'm involved in a text message interaction with them, you know, I was, I was just having a, I don't know, I don't want to say fight, but my, my best friend and I were kind of, we were having a bit of an altercation or a disagreement and we were both a little bit hurt. And he messaged me saying, Hey dude, I, I can't even remember what the, what the exact words he used were, but it was implying that like everything was fine. But I knew everything wasn't fine. I could just feel it, even though it was on the other side of the planet, right? I could just feel, you know, like it's not okay. And I find that, that fascinating. You don't even have to have that person in front of you. I think, I think that's partly because we're all connected on some level, right? You can feel in this etheric field or whatever it is that connects us all. You know when, when things aren't right or when they are right even. So here's,
0: a, here's, here's something to do with your friend. And you can do it. Works in texting, obviously. If you're in front of somebody and talking to them verbally, it's more effective. But it works. It works in social media and text messaging, SMS messaging as well. Instead of replying to what it is they say or they written, listen to the emotions in the words. What's the emotional experience that this person is having right right now? And right back, you are whatever that is. Mm-hmm. So you can say, "Hey, dude, you are really frustrated. You're angry." you're sad, you feel alone,
1: and you feel like you've been betrayed. Mm. And just write that and watch what happens. Wow, that sounds like absolute magic. Now, another place my mind goes, and I'm, and I'm definitely going to use this, by the way, Doug, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Uh, another place my mind goes is w- one of my mentors and close friends, he taught me this exercise, which is, to learn to label and identify your own emotional states. And yeah. so using the specific phrase, this is what X looks like. So if you're exhausted or if you're hungry, or if you're afraid, you in your mind, you say, this is what X looks, this is what hunger looks like, this is what fear looks like. And just having that particular abstraction through language between yourself and the emotion, you know, already g- gives you some sort of empowerment over it. And I would guess that the more emotionally attuned you are to your own emotional world, the more easily you would be able to identify it in others and then subsequently use the technique that you've just taught us. Is, is that accurate? Well, actually, no. Although
0: your insights are correct, what you're describing is a process known as self athic labeling, which is a very powerful way to calm your own emotional state. And, and the way I teach it is simply say, I am angry or I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling lonely, whatever it is. Describe your own emotional experience. And even if you don't have a word for it, say, well, I'm feeling grobbly drop," you know, just make up some noise. Mm -hmm. And and there's science behind why this works. But what I've discovered, especially working in prisons with life inmates, mostly people who have committed pretty heinous crimes, is that you can teach people to become emotionally self-aware faster by teaching them how to read other people's emotions. And as they learn how to read other people's emotions, they begin to get in touch with their own emotional state and their own authenticity and their own honesty as a human being. And that's when the transformations start to take place. So a lot of people talk about emotional intelligence, which I think is can't be taught, but they all they do is describe what emotional intelligence is and say, go do it without even teaching you the how. The way you develop emotional intelligence and I prefer to call it emotional competency is by learning how to read and reflect back other people's emotions. That builds up a database in your own brain of emotional experience that you can then use to apply to yourself. Mm -hmm. So we start by teaching empathy, which is called epic labeling as cognitive empathy. And over a period of weeks, it doesn't take long, over a period of weeks, you become more emotionally self-aware and then you're able to emotionally self-regulate and all of a sudden you've developed
1: emotional intelligence. It happens automatically mm-hmm. and it's easy. This is mind blowing to me because I read something and I cannot remember where it was or exactly what it was saying, but it, it said that for certain individuals going inwards is actually not a good thing, right? Like, like focusing on your internal state and And getting meditative or contemplative or mindful is actually not good for them. And it causes more harm than good. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but I'm just thinking about this particular, what we're discussing now is, you know, my my original theory was like, the more you feel your own emotions, the more you can, you know, feel others. But what you're saying is it's the exact opposite. It's the more you can externalize and, and empathize and put yourself in the shoes of another person, the better you're gonna be with your own emotions.
0: That's correct, and the reason for that is because most of us have grown up in emotionally abusive families. 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. And parents are emotionally abusive without even knowing that this is the way it is. And as a result, very few of us have experienced emotional safety. And and so we're afraid of emotions, we're afraid of emotional vulnerability, we're afraid of uh, these intense feelings of shame, and blame and anger that we have repressed since childhood, which many people have, and so asking people to dive into that is asking them to endure a lot of pain mm. without the tools to, to to navigate through it. So what I've learned is that when you start teaching people how to listen to other people's emotions, they can now they're starting to get a scaffolding or a database structure that allows them to start. Managing their own emotions because they can begin to recognize what they see in other people. They recognize it in themselves. And slowly, like a weightlifter, they gain emotional strength. And they can start dealing with the the old childhood pain that has plagued them. And slowly affect label themselves and in a period of just a couple of months, really. um, Really clear a lot of the crap that they grew up with. And become much happier, more fulfilled, authentic, honest human beings.
1: Much happier, more authentic, fulfilled human beings. Is that what you said? Yeah. Honest, fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about, I guess, at the end of the day. I mean, everything I'm trying to do, all my work is, I just want to have a better human experience or the best possible human experience. And it sounds like the the tools that you've created and the insights that you've gained help people do that, which means I'm very interested in it. I just have, uh, I just want to dig a little bit deeper with regards to the tools you teach people how to read others' emotions. And now I understand why you do that, but could you maybe give us a, a starter kit on how to start reading others' emotions? I mean, I guess it's partly something to do with being very present and focusing your awareness on their body language or listening. You said listen to the emotions within their language, but that sounds a little bit abstract and a little bit vague to me can you can you clarify sure. a little bit sure it's a, you
0: don't have to do anything <laughs> yeah. that's what's so great about it so all you have to do is just quiet your mind for 10 seconds you don't have to go into mindfulness or vipassana or anything like that you just you just just quiet your mind and let your let your preconscious brain process what it, information data it's absorbing Emotional data is absorbing from the other person. And in a matter of seconds, thoughts will start coming into your mind. Oh, he's angry. He's frustrated. Mm -hmm. You know, it helps to have a vocabulary. And I've got, there are 12 words, or basically I've got a 12-word emotional vocabulary that covers 98% of everything anybody experiences. Like I said, very limited repertoire. So you've got this, you've got a vocabulary. Your brain is uh, processing and these, and then the 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 emotions will be associated with words that will float into your mind. It, I mean, it is literally that simple. and if you if you really want to test this, then what I tell my students is to turn off, listen to a radio uh, the first step is to listen to a radio ad. If you're listening to the radio, and you listen to an ad that lasts for fifteen, they're usually fifteen to twenty seconds these days. Count how many emotions are come out of that ad. Hmm. And usually it's going to be somewhere between 10 and 15. There's going to be about one emotion every second. And count how many, and then label the emotions as best you can as you listen to the ad. And you will find, you'll be amazed at what you're able to discern. Another exercise that I ask my students to do is if you're watching a movie or television, or you're online and you're watching a show, turn the volume down and then watch the actors and see how many emotions you can label in a two-minute scene. Hmm. From and and you will, and you don't have to effort at this. It's automatic. It's innate, it's an innate skill we have. All you have to do is say, okay, I'm looking at the actors. What emotions do I see? Yeah. What's coming, what's coming through to me? And just start writing them down. And you'll be oh, amazed in two minutes, you'll have you'll have 10, 15, 20 emotions that you've been able to see. And that will show you that in fact, oh, I do have this innate ability to read other people's emotions. All I have to do is pay attention. And paying attention is not effortful.
1: Yeah, that's really, really cool. Uh, I'm just, I'm sure those listening now, if they didn't before, have some idea of the importance of the understanding of emotions, in particular, the emotions of others and how to use that to de-escalate conflicts. And I'm reminded of another quote, which really stuck with me when I heard it. It's by Maya Angelou, which is people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. That's exactly right. It's, it's, you know, there's, there's certain people that relationships in my life when I, I just, you know, like there's one particular uh, relationship that I, I had a business relationship and, you know, I can't even, I can't even deal with that person anymore. I just can't even like he, he, he wants to be friends and have a cordial relationship. And, and to be honest, man, that relationship made me feel so shitty for so long. Right. I just, I just don't even want to engage with that person anymore. And if that's true, then the corollary must also be true, which is, and it is, I know there are certain people in my life who make me feel so good when I'm around them. I just want to spend more time with them. Right. So if we, if we can take your, your teachings and your, your methods on board, we can become far less of the former and more of the latter and who doesn't want to be that person that everyone wants to be around. That's right. And and what does it feel like to be able
0: to know what to say, when to say it and how to say it, no matter how intense the situation is to have total confidence in any difficult conversation, in any difficult relationship situation, even in places where you're being accused of being a bad person and people are really angry at you and you're able to just be present, quiet, calm, collected, not get upset, not get triggered, label the other person's emotions, calm things down, and be able to have an honest conversation about what the, what the difference of opinion is. Mm. Imagine being able to do that.
1: Yeah, I'm imagining it right now. I want more. Where, where should I go and where should the <laughs> okay. listeners go if, if they want to find out more about what you do and, and what you I, offer? I created a webpage
0: for everybody who's listening on my website, and the webpage is webpage It's a bit.ly link, dougknoll.co slash ng. Really simple. And on that page, there are four things. Of course, that'll get you onto my website. You can roll around and explore everything on my website. A lot of resources. But the four things that I have for everybody is a free ebook that describes everything that we've been talking about, about this affect labeling and listening and how to calm an angry person. Free ebook that gives you all the basics. You can get a copy of my fourth book, Deescalate How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. You can also get uh, by, by my deescalate video course, which teaches you in a video course how to do everything I've been talking about. And then for those who are really interested in building their emotional competency, you can get um, $800 off my basic and advanced emotional competency courses, also online, that will teach you all, everything we've been talking about today plus a whole lot more to become an emotionally competent human being. So
1: the link is dugnoll.co slash ng awesome uh doug i i mean this conversation i was i had a feeling it was going to be a good one but it, it truly exceeded my expectations and thank you I, I greatly appreciate your wisdom and insight and i'm sure we'll have you on the show again absolutely
0: happy to come back and i found the conversation to be very enlightening thank you i told you guys
1: that was a good one i am such a i have such an interest in interpersonal dynamics because as i've said many times in the past on the show the thing that's caused me the most pain in my life has been the breakdown or the failure of relationships so anytime i'm presented with the opportunity of improving my ability in that in that sphere I, i take it with both hands and as i said in the intro the stuff that doug's speaking about really works I've already started to use it in my interactions with my my family and close friends and loved ones, and I've noticed a difference. I've seen it the way it calms people down almost instantly. In fact, my sister was really upset about something recently. Someone had really uh, something that had happened that had really upset her, and during our conversation, I I used the techniques. I, I listened with curiosity to try to figure out what was going on I took a guess at the emotion that she was dealing with and I said to her it sounds like you're very frustrated and angry and it was amazing how quickly it, it placated isn't the right word but but calmed her so please give that a try I've got Doug's book I've started reading and it. it's really cool I also downloaded his free e- ebook off his site and um, that's pretty cool as well so guys I hope you enjoyed the show I'll be back in a week with another one until then may the force be with you